Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And before we hear from our guest today, I just wanted to say that in December, Mad in America founder Robert Whittaker will be on the podcast answering your questions. So if you've ever wondered about Madden America and its mission, or rethinking psychiatry more broadly, now's your chance. Please email questions to askmia at maddenamerica.com, that's A-S-K-M-I-A at maddenamerica.com, by November 10th, and we will pick a selection. Also, do let us know if you're happy to be named or would prefer to remain anonymous. And now, on to the podcast. Our guest today is Brooke Seam. Brooke is a writer, speaker, and advocate for the safe deprescribing of psychiatric drugs. Her work on antidepressant withdrawal has appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Post, Psychology Today, and many more. She is also an award-winning chef and Food Network Chopped champion. In this interview, we talk about her experiences of withdrawal from a cocktail of psychiatric drugs and her debut memoir, May Cause Side Effects, published in 2022, which is one of the first books on antidepressant withdrawal to make it to the mass market. Brooke, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today for the Madden America podcast. I'm absolutely uh, thrilled to get the chance to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we're here to talk about some of your experiences of the mental health system and polypharmacy and experiences which are beautifully captured in your book, May Cause Side Effects, which was published by Central Recovery Press in 2022. And, you know, there's so much in the book that I, you know, I'm sure we'll get to talk about, but your memoir is fascinating or was fascinating to me because at the very time that you were making the decision to reduce your psychiatric drug burden, you were also making some major changes in your life, which I assume led to kind of many challenges and opportunities. So I'm sure we'll come on to talk about some of those experiences, but to get us underway, could you tell us a little bit about you and how it was that you first got involved with the mental health system? Sure. Yeah. So it was 2001. So I think the timing there is is important for context. The world was a little different then. Uh, I was 15 years old and my father had suddenly passed away. And, you know, when I look back, I don't really see someone who was going down a terrible path. You know, I wasn't suddenly into drugs or hanging out with the wrong crowd. My grades didn't tank, you know, but I was a bit different like than I was before. And I was very, very stoic. I was a serious ballet dancer. So, you know, the mantra of ballet is smile through pain. And so my reaction was kind of concerning to the adults around me. And I was taken to a child psychologist who was, you know, objectively terrible and probably the only person in town at that point. And after a few sessions in which uh, it was clearly a pretty bad match and I was not interested in cooperating because she broke my trust early on. She called my mother one day. I didn't know this. She just called her up and said, uh, I'm recommending a psychiatrist. Brooke doesn't need a psychologist. She needs a psychiatrist. I'm diagnosing a depressive and anxiety disorder and recommending medication. Now at the time, you know, I was 15, but I was still protected by HIPAA laws in the state um, because 
you know, I guess I wasn't considered enough danger to, for that to be shared. So my mom had no context and said, she just, you know, did what she thought was the right thing and took me into the child psychiatrist. And within about, you know, my first appointment, child psychiatrist, I had a prescription for a psychiatric drug. Uh, I don't remember which one. I think we started with Prozac and then moved on likely to Zoloft since those were the two that were approved for use in children and teens at the time. But I had uh, obvious physical reactions to both drugs. And so in the end, we ended up on a combination of Effexor, XR, and Wellbutrin XL, neither of which was approved for kids and teens at the time and still isn't. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, Brooke, it was, I was so sad to read about the impact that losing your father ha- at such a young age had on you. But then I couldn't help but be frustrated to read that the response to your grief seemed to be the desire to medicate you and medicate you quickly. So looking back now, how do you feel about that? Ah, God. You know, I mean, that old adage of if you know better, you do better comes to mind. And I think that is the case for at least my mom and I, we have lots of conversations about this and I hold no resentment or ill will towards her, the choices she made, because I know that she was just doing, she was just doing the best she could too, right? She was also grieving. But but what happened then and is still happening now, and I think it's far worse now, is, is there's, there's absolutely no grace given. There's no time given for kids. You know, there's, we we want them to experience so little struggle and for some reason we think that if if we don't intervene in the struggle early somehow it's going to derail the rest of their life but i think what we're doing there is actually intervening and in, in, in derailing the rest of their life because we're not allowing them to learn and build resilience and feel what it feels like to be uncomfortable and understand that that's going to ebb and flow. And how do we get out of that? It's everything is so reactive. And so for me, that was the real impact and it's affected everything from, you know, the way the obvious things, right? Like the way I was able to build resilience and understand my own mental and emotional and psychological strength, how I self-soothe, how I, my curiosity, what I wanted to do in the world, my jobs, financial stability, my relationships, literally every single aspect of my life was deeply affected, but it was so insidious. It's just, you know, kind of like, I always think of this metaphor of when you're flying an airplane, if you get off by just one degree, you give it enough time and you're going to end up very far away from your de- from your destination, Right. And that's what it felt like. It felt like such a small choice at the time, but it made such a huge, huge, huge impact. Obviously, you cover some of those impacts in the book. And again, you write really well about it. And and I hope it's okay to talk about this. So you share in the book that you had suicidal thoughts, um, you know, as many, quite a long time after starting on the drugs. And, you know, I, I think it's brave to share in such an open and honest way as you did. And I hope it's okay to read a short quote from the book. Sure. You say nearly a decade and a half after making a decision that seemed so small, so obvious at the time, to go on to antidepressants at 15 years old, I found myself staring at a patch of New York City sidewalk from 30 floors above, contemplating the biggest choice of all. And, you know, so 
I, I guess, did, you know, did you feel that those thoughts were because of a particular diagnosis or, or did you feel it was it was because of the situation that you found yourself in? Uh, neither, honestly. And, and I just coexisted with those thoughts. Like, I, I was never frightened by them. I was, it never occurred to me to call the suicide hotline, right? Like all these, you know, campaigns, it felt like they were for somebody else. And it didn't, somehow it didn't resonate with me at all. And I I don't entirely know why that is. I think, but I think at the core of it, two things were true. One, I really did not want to be alive. So why would I reach out to, you know, help myself as or ask for help, right? Because at the core, I didn't want to live. At the same time, it just, the thought process was, well, what could they do? Like, what is talking to a stranger really gonna help with the fact that I am fundamentally broken, right? And so that is where, that is where the narrative of mental health and, you know, the um, cultural meaning of these things and the whole, it's not your fault mantra really kind of snuck in. It completely removed my responsibility to help myself in any way. And it taught me that nothing was my fault. And people don't like to hear that. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are all at the center of the universe. It's how we all view the world, right? Um, I am the hero of my own story. So it stands to reason that I have some control here. (laughs) And it doesn't matter what the outside influence or the diagnosis is, you are still in some level and on many levels and arguably all of them in control of your own life. But I abdicated that power very early on because that's what was taught to me. So through actions. So, you know, these, these, these suicidal ideation, you know, it just, it just was, it was as common to me as looking at a tree and saying, Oh, that's a tree. <laughs> just, and so I never felt alarmed by it. And it wasn't, it never, it just felt like who I was. Um, it felt consistent to me in the way my heart beats. And it really only started to, it really only started to come up in a way that I was like, huh, this is, maybe there's something not quite right about this. That only started to come up when I started to do the mental math on how long I had been feeling that way. Uh, in conjunction with how many antidepressants I had been taking. And at some point the light bulb just went off and I said, I shouldn't be this depressed on this many antidepressants. Like it doesn't work. Something's something's going on. And that was just the, there was just like a hint of curiosity there to say, okay, well, clearly something needs to change. At the time, I just thought I needed to switch to a different antidepressant. Again, I had fully bought into the narrative thinking that this was like hard research science that it was as effective as, you know, Advil for headaches or insulin for diabetes or all the things. I thought it was just like that. So I just thought maybe I needed to change pharmaceuticals, not change who I was and my perspective. It's so difficult for people, isn't it, to be honest about having thoughts of hurting themselves? Because if you admit that to a professional, there's a, there's a high likelihood of then being involuntarily committed. So, you know, I, I think, you know, your honesty in discussing that that was part of your experience is, is really helpful for others to understand. I wasn't seeing any traditional therapist. I wasn't seeing a psychiatrist. 
I kind of intuitively knew to lie about it if I was asked, but my strategy was instead just to make jokes. And, you know, so it wasn't that I was fully never expressing things. I just did it in a socially acceptable way. And that felt like, you know, letting a little bit of pressure out of the balloon as needed. (laughs) So, yeah, you describe in the book that the kind of, you know, many ways that the drugs are affecting you. And at one point you calculate that you're taking 42 pills a week. It's just staggering numbers of pills. And obviously they're combinations of antidepressants, drugs for hyperthyroidism, drugs for gastric issues, which presumably are a consequence of taking the antidepressants in the first place. So, you know, obviously, you know, you talk there about getting to a point where you thought, you know, I'm taking all these things and, you know, I don't really feel much better for it. So was that the kind of trigger point for you to start to think about coming off yeah that was the moment i had i have a little habit of quantifying things that feel too big for me to cognitively understand so i had kind of taken up this little hobby at night i'd come home from the work at the bakery i owned and do some rudimentary math on all sorts of things and i had calculated the number of days i'd been alive the number of days that had gone by since my father had died. Uh, I had taken a bunch of life expectancy tests online and averaged the results in order to find an approximate date of how long I was uh, supposed to live. And so I had all these numbers and I started looking at them. And then I also calculated the number of pills I'd taken, all these things. The, The bigness of these numbers really started to hit me, which kind of was the purpose of the exercise. And so the things that really stood out was that I had taken more drugs, more capsules than the number of days I'd been alive and in a significantly shorter period of time. And also that I was reaching this weird little milestone where because I was, my my father had been dead at that point for 15 years and I was 30. So I said, well, I'm about to go into the point of my life where I will have had more time without him than I ever did with him. And that also means that because I was medicated pretty quickly after he died, I will have spent more than half of my life on these powerful psychiatric drugs than not. And furthermore, the only frame of reference I had as an unmedicated person was as a 14-year-old kid. And I was in my 30s and I was on the same cocktail of drugs. Like, I didn't wear the same clothes I wore in high school. Why in the hell was I still taking the same cocktail of drugs every morning? And there was just something about that that just didn't make any sense to me because I knew I wasn't the same body. My brain wasn't the same. So how, if the science was sound, why hadn't it adjusted over time? And that was the question that really put me on this path. Yeah, absolutely. And and then obviously you describe your kind of foray into the the wonderful world of withdrawal. And I think you know you, you saw a psychiatrist who recommended that you stop your first antidepressant. I think was that Effexor. That was Effexor. Yeah, yeah. So and and pretty much cold turkey. I think it was. You know, which of course you know people have had the luxury of knowing about this. You know, can take steps to do that, but you you didn't know about that, so you went straight into this kind of unknown territory. And around a similar time, you know, you were getting ready to be on a major cooking show in the US. You were planning a year traveling around the world to work in different parts of the world. So, you know, all of that seems to kind of come crashing together in, in, in your life. So, you know, tell us what that period of time was like for you. 
So uh, there was a confluence of things that happened all at once. I was living in New York City. I owned a bakery. I'm a chef by trade. And I had I had sort of drunkenly applied to compete on Food Network's show Chopped. And then I didn't hear anything back from them for months. And then one day, about six months later, they started to basically say, like, okay, we want you to compete. <laughs> and I had to go through a few, you know, application steps. But I did most of those before I got off the antidepressants because I'm just trying to find a way to, like, get myself out of this, you know, depression and whatnot. Um, it's basically trying to find a way to wake up is how I could describe it. And, but I, uh, when they finally emailed me and said, you've been chosen, I was deep in effects or withdrawal. And it was, it was a bad day. Cause I was like, this is not, this is not going to work. Um, <laughs> and so there was that, that was kind of the least of my problems though, because I had also, received this completely out of the blue opportunity to travel around the world for a year and work around the world. And I think if most people had received this opportunity, they may have been really excited and grateful and, you know, really wanted it. For me, there was no joy in this opportunity at all. I simply saw it. I saw it as a binary. I said, I can either, you know, go through with the suicidal plans or I can go on this trip. And I said, my life can't be the same after this trip. So that was the reason why I did it. There was no, I didn't, I didn't really want it like in the way that you would expect. It was more just like, it's this or that. So we're going to go the least severe opportunity right now and see what happens. Uh, so there was a lot of, you know, visas and I had to get subletters and deal with my business. And there was a lot of logistics to make this work. And so one of the logistics that I ran into was not being able to take a suitcase of the six drugs I was on at the time, <laughs> full of drugs around the world. I mean, literally some of the places I was going to don't allow you to bring any kind of like psychiatric drug into the country. And I wasn't necessarily going to be able to get a reliable substitute in the middle of Cambodia and I just was like, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. I knew that. So I had about six months before I was supposed to leave. And so I, you know, I, again, I did what I was supposed to do. The commercial said, go see your doctor. So I found a doctor and I said, I'm going to go to a psychiatrist this time, not my GP. And I saw her and she was, you know, the usual horror story. She was unsupportive she told me if I had any withdrawal symptoms, it would be maybe feeling like the flu for a few days. Um, at that point, I was on uh, the lowest dose of Effexor on the market. So she was, you know, 37.5 milligrams. So she was saying, well, I can't prescribe you a lower dose. There was there was no talk of a compound pharmacy. There was no talk of, I mean, hyper, the word hyperbolic tapering didn't even exist in our language at that point. So there was no talk of that. She didn't even suggest a taken every other day type of thing, which I've heard sometimes they do, which I, well, uh, sounds risky. Um, she did prescribe Prozac and said that, you know, take this instead because she was talking about half-lives and saying, well, Vexor has a short half-life. And, you know, that's why you might feel like you have the flu for a couple of days. But if you take the Prozac, well, then it'll help bridge, right? I mean, it's, language that is commonly used. And for me, instinctually, 
I said, I'm trying to get off these because I knew that I needed to discover my baseline. I still thought that I just needed to be on a different drug. But I said, how are we going to know what I need to be on if I don't spend some time without anything? Because again, my only frame of reference is being a 14-year-old 15 years ago. So to me, I was like, why would you prescribe another psychiatric drug that I then have to get off of? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And then I also, my father had been on Prozac for a short time before he died. So in the late 90s, and he hated it. So I thought to myself, if there's any sort of genetic component of how this drug is processed, then that doesn't bode well for me. So I just said, you know, screw that again. I didn't know what I was about to get into. <laughs> I said, screw that. And I just stopped taking the effects are. And, you know, that's when, you know, a, a book began, but I didn't know it at the time. One of the parts of the book that I, that most affected me, because, you know, I, I've been through not the same experiences, but I've been through a difficult withdrawal experience. And, you know, I think, as I mentioned to you earlier, you know, if you go online and you look at the descriptions of withdrawal, you'll see a list of physical symptoms, you know, nausea and head pains and, you know, head shocks and, you know, all the normal things. And you read that list and, and it doesn't actually look that bad. You think, well, I can tolerate that. When you go through the experience, that list of physical symptoms does not do the experience any justice. But you you capture it beautifully in the book particularly i have to say what, what's not talked about often is where the withdrawal effect on your thinking processes so the chaos that your mind is in that the the random rage that comes out of nowhere the kind of deluded thoughts that you get the the questioning you know am i mad is this really happening to me you know am i going to act on some of these strange thoughts i'm having and you know brooke you did a just an incredible job of capturing the maelstrom of chaos going on in your mind when you were going through those early stages of withdrawal well thank you for saying that you know i wrote the book from that perspective intentionally because I, I realized in, in the year, you know, I was in severe withdrawal for about a year and it took about another year to kind of come out of it and feel steady in the world. I thought, you know, how, how in the world is anyone going to understand this or even identify it if they can't somehow get close to experiencing it? So I was very intentional about that because not only does it allow people who are going through it to be able to say like, that, yes, I understand. That's me. This is, I'm not alone because I didn't have that. Right. So, you know, in some ways this was the book I wish I had had <laughs> when I was going through it. And in other ways, you know, the more that prescribers can read it, the more that family members or caregivers can read the book and understand have some idea of what their loved one or patient is going through, the better everyone is going to be able to na navigate it. So it's written in a very intentional way in order to create that effect there's a little bit in the book that i i really enjoyed reading where it, it kind of dawns on you for the first time that you're free of the drugs after all those tough times and you're 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 taking diving lessons you're learning to dive and you have to fill in a consent form which says are you presently taking prescription medic medications and you say for the first time in my adult life i get to write no in bold letters i feel a twinge of something like pride swell within me i did it not with much grace or any dignity and i'm still a mess but i did it Reading that bit of celebration really did make me smile. Yeah, it still does. I uh, I was getting my brain scanned for some research, just like kind of, kind of for fun, a couple of weeks ago. Um, for fun for me. I don't know if that's what other people 
I don't know if that's what other people uh, think are fun, but for me, I was uh, very, I'm very interested in in coming at this from both the research side and also, you know, the psychospiritual side because I think they're deeply connected. And that for the individual, you you know, you need both. You think one or the other kind of leaves a pretty big gap. But um, so I have this cap on my head, and it's filled with all these like. 19 little nodule things and they're putting all this goo in my hair and scratching my skin to make sure the electroconductivity is right. And they're just asking me all these routine questions at the same time. And one of them is, are you on any prescription drugs? And I'm just like, it was another moment of just like, no, I'm not still, it's been seven years. And the answer is still no. Yeah. I I think it might give people a sense of the the magnitude and gravity of the experience that people still many years sometimes decades afterwards still think uh, with pride that they achieved it you know and, and there aren't many situations in life that you can say that about um so uh, um, a few months ago you you're a guest panelist on um one of madden, madden america's online discussions about psychiatric withdrawal and and you talked of using radical acceptance as a way to manage and cope in in very difficult times and that's also mentioned in the book and i like that concept very much so i, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about that so w- what does radical acceptance mean for you well i have to give tara brock credit for that phrase. She has a book called Radical Acceptance, and I definitely borrowed it from her and have learned a lot of the concepts from her too. And, you know, I I think radical acceptance and radical self-awareness really go hand in hand. And it's this idea that, I mean, we have to fully accept what's going on in any given moment, especially when it's painful. And it's only, it's really only when you can finally accept that and stop fighting it that I think you leave room for healing to begin. And also, you know, it just gets a little easier to handle, you know, to make friends with the pain in a lot of ways. And that doesn't, the, the, the trick for me is, you know, I find that the, somehow it's never about the pain, and this is physical pain or emotional pain. In the moment, I at this point, I know I can always handle it. I've learned to dissociate a little bit from it in a way where I'm more of the observer as opposed to the, the thing that's experiencing it. Even with physical pain, I find it very interesting how that's translated. If, you know, if something has happened, I find that I can almost get into a state where there's this kind of wall between... I guess what I could call, you know, the soul or the spirit and the body experiencing the pain. And if I get myself on the right side of that wall, then the pain, I still feel it, but it somehow it doesn't feel like pain quite in the same way. It's a very difficult thing to explain. And I don't think there's any words that will ever fully encompass it, but it it allows for a little reprieve. So it's never about the moment, right? We think it is. It's about the fear that it will never end. That is where real pain comes from (laughs) because we have evidence, all of us in our own life, that we have handled every single thing that has come at us. By the fact that we are all here today on this planet in this one moment and the only moment that ever truly exists proves that we have handled literally everything that has come at us and literally every moment where we didn't think we can get through it, right? 
So it's not about the moment. It's about the fear of, 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 of this never getting better. So if you can somehow dissociate from that, pull back in, radically accept the moment you're in, all the pain, emotional, physical, whatever it is, all at once, let it do what it's going to do. Let it process however it's going to process. That's when we actually can start to let it go. Let, again, the pressure release a little bit and just start to get the validation that nothing is forever. And when you realize that nothing is forever, then things start to flow and, you know, the pressure, the pain can release. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I can't remember who it was that that coined the phrase "this too shall pass," and it all, always sounds very glib. But it 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 is true, isn't it? That if if you hang on to the thought that I am not stuck like this, you know, things change. It might change for the worse. It might change for the better. But yeah, and also there's something about trusting yourself, isn't there? Trusting your body to know to find a way through those difficult times and trusting your mind to sort out the turbulence. And, you know, if you can trust your body and not get bound up emotionally in it and add more energy into an already chaotic system, I think that can be helpful for some people. Right. I think so much about that. And, you know, for me in withdrawal, it was about trying to put as much space in between the, the, the the issue you know the, the the withdrawal reaction and my reaction right because those things got really blurred so you know it was kind of almost like um facing whatever it was speaking it out loud whatever the thing was somehow if I just brought it all up into my conscious awareness it would sort of diffuse the situation so you know if I was having really bad intrusive thoughts if I could just break, put a moment in between and, and break it somehow, it would help. So for me, I mean, the intrusive thoughts were so scary because they were, you know, violent and I was, you know, it made me feel like I was going to hurt someone or myself. But the second I started speaking it out loud or writing it down, it was, you know, kind of like showing the ghost itself in the mirror and it got scared and went away. And sometimes I felt like I was doing that pretty constantly, like journaling for you know an hour or something in order to get it to calm down but you know speaking speaking it diffused it and I think that's when the you know radical acceptance and the radical self-awareness had to come along that I just had to be very honest with myself and say that you know right now you can't pretend that this isn't happening we need to talk about it we need to face it I had to find safe people to do that or you know even just talk to my dog or a piece of paper but and so brooke you know i obviously i mean the book you know the praise for the book has been off off the scale and it's completely understandable why and you know and i'm sure that you know having written the book with people reading it they are coming to you probably emailing you messaging you you know left right and center asking for advice so how do you kind of approach you know perhaps helping people that are coming to you to say i'm either i've either i mean the into withdrawal and i didn't know i was going to be in this situation or i'm thinking about it and i read your book to kind of help me through it so you know how, how do you approach kind of speaking to people about their experience it, a lot of it depends on what they're asking me i the you know the first thing is that i don't work one-on-one with people in any sort of therapeutic way or even really an advisory way. I thought, you know, there are some fantastic individuals who do that. And I sort of tried it for, and just realized this is not, not for me. This is not how um, I want to contribute to this cause. So 
the thing for me is that I find that, you know, asking why and, and getting answers is the best route, at least for me, to healing. And so if people come to me, I just try and provide as many resources as possible. I I explain, you know, if they ask questions about my personal story, I'm happy to answer. Um, and then just to give them tools because it doesn't, like at the end of the day, it's each individual that's going to take themselves, you know, through the healing process. So I can't drag them there, <laughs> but I can give as many tools as possible. I, you know, I keep up as much as I can on the latest research and, you know, what's going on. So I have the tools to give them. Whenever people reach out to me, it's somehow exactly the same and completely different every time. You know, at the end of the day, everyone's saying the same thing. They're all having the same problem, but the way it manifests, like, just absolutely blows my mind sometimes. I mean, right, recently I've been talking to a parent of a 17-year-old boy who was put on antidepressants at some point during the pandemic, started experiencing PSSD, he's 17, and so he went on the black market to get testosterone in order because he did the, did a bunch of research and determined that that was part of his problem. So now this poor, these poor parents are trying to figure out, like, the kid's super smart. He realizes that there's a problem. He's angry about it. None of the doctors can help him, but he's, because they don't know, right? He's more educated than them on the subject at this point. But, like, what do you do? I mean, he's literally on the black market getting steroids to try and fix a problem caused by a psychiatrist when he was, you know, 14. Like that one to me has just blown my mind that you have that, that, that the, the, the internet allows for 17 year olds to learn about all this and then try and fix their own problem through black market hormones caused by an antidepressant. Um, so it's just shocking, you know, the, the variety, the variety of stories I hear, but as long as they know that they're not alone and then someone hears them, I find that goes a really, really long way. There's the balance between reaching out for help and being, knowing that you're not, you know, you're not nuts, you're not alone, understanding what's going on with you and also having the strength and the sense to then pull you away from, from, from other people's pain. Because if you go online on an internet forum, everyone there is basically talking from the worst day of their life. And if you spend too much time that you're, you're going to lose all sense of your own compass because it's so dark there. So I, I don't really recommend that people spend, if people are going to go in peer support groups, I personally think that they're a lot better in person on like kind of more AA style. Like we are, we have a set amount of time and we are talking in person or over Zoom and, you know, it's not just go doom scroll on a forum indefinitely. Brooke, was there anything else that we hadn't covered that we should share with people listening? You know, obviously, I just I would hope that as many people as possible go out and buy or listen to the book because I think that there's, you know, the amount of things people can take from it are just so uh, different and important. And then, you know, from a from a more global level I, I think I think it's important for people to understand how much the pain that they're experiencing and what they're going through again we're all the center of our own story so it can very much feel like it's only happening to us and 
you know, trying to find a lesson in it can be a very difficult undertaking when you're in the middle of it. But I think if maybe you can focus a little bit on how by going through this experience, you are helping so many people around you because you're going to get spit out on the other side, someone you don't recognize, but someone who is wildly empathetic and who has a better understanding of themselves and will have a much more honed inner compass, which is going to help you navigate the world in a way that resonates with you and will therefore resonate with other people. And that this experience is going to bring up all the things that you need to address and work on and all the things in your family dynamic that you need to address and work on. And if you can just find some way to shift into this as the greatest learning experience you will ever have, even if it sucks and that somehow it's your duty to bear this and again, really start with the radical acceptance and radical self-awareness, then that's when you can start answering the, asking the right questions. I think the more you can do that work, the faster this process will go because part of the reason why it is there is to get you to learn and, and move and graduate. And I, yeah, it's just, there's a reason for all of this and, and that, that is it. That is it. And, you know, we have all been anointed with this gift in a way that no one wants, but there's so much good that can come out of it. If you can just buckle up and let the ride take you. Brooke, thank you so much. I have to say that your book was powerfully affecting to read and I identified so much with so much of the mental chaos that you described so well, the racing obtrusive thoughts, a sudden rush of emotions and urges that can't be easily explained, the feeling of losing touch with yourself as a person, um, you know, with experiences kind of filtered through a, this pharmacological lens. So I, I really do urge listeners to go and get a copy and read it. And I'm so pleased to see that, you know, how you've transcended those experiences. And, you know, the book is doing so much good for people that might be younger and kind of experiencing those things. So, you know, it was fascinating to get to talk about some of your journey, Brooke. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and for all of your great work as well. Well, I just want to thank Brooke so much for being with us today. To find out more about her work, you can visit her website, which can be found at brookseem.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M.com. So as always, thank you so much for listening today. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.